Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible psychotherapist, sexologist, and author, Dr. Tammy Nelson. Hello, Tammy, and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Today, we're going to be talking about open monogamy. And for those that don't know, Dr. Tammy Nelson is a licensed psychotherapist, board-certified sexologist, certified sex therapist, and certified imago relationship therapist. She is a TEDx speaker and the host of the Trouble with Sex podcast. She is the executive director of the Integrative Sex Therapy Institute and has been a featured expert in the New York Times Magazine, the Washington Post, CNN, and more. Her previous books include Getting the Sex You Want, The New Monogamy, and When You're the One Who Cheats. And she's here to talk about her newest book, Open Monogamy, A Guide to Co-Creating Your Ideal Relationship Agreement. How are you today, Tammy? I'm great. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy you're here too. I know you're a very busy person with all your practice and your institute. And I appreciate you coming on and taking time out of your busy day to chat with us. And I have so many questions. And this is such an important topic. We haven't gotten too into other ways of relating beyond monogamy that we all know. And before we get into your newest book, I want to go in the past a little bit and ask you about New Monogamy, which came out in 2012. And it talks about redefining our relationship after infidelity. So before we get into open monogamy, I'm curious for our listeners unfamiliar with your work, what is the new monogamy and what does new monogamy mean to you? (laughs) It seems so old now. I can't believe the book is (laughs) 10 years old. You know, so the new monogamy was a way to redefine your relationship after infidelity. It was a way to, you know, draw a line in the sand and reboot your relationship instead of trading your partner in for someone else to create a new agreement that worked for the two of you. So instead of trying to go back to the relationship you had before the affair to have a a conversation that would work to bring you two together in a whole new way. So it was looking at affairs as like a wake up or breakup. So when you say make up or breakup, I'm curious how many people choose which path. I think when a lot of people discover an affair or they mention that their partner has cheated on them, the common advice is, well, that's it. Your relationship is over. You might as well get the divorce, split up the kids, do what you need to do. But I think more and more people are coming to the realization that an affair does not have to mean the end of a relationship. So when we do have that like decision, what do you encourage or what do you find in your practice about the routes that people choose? Well, I think you're right. More and more people are deciding, you know, is it really worth trying to trade my partner in and find a new version and start over again? 
when I've really invested a lot in this version, you know, maybe we have kids, maybe we have a mortgage and an affair isn't necessarily a reason to call it quits. You know, affairs don't necessarily mean that um, there's something wrong with our relationship. Sometimes people cheat to stay in their marriage, which, you know, it's a hard thing to wrap your mind around, but you know, there's 75 million members of Ashley Madison, which is that married but dating website. And so <laughs> there's a lot of infidelity going around and people are choosing to find extramarital partners and sort of outsource their needs instead of getting divorced now. So we know that people have non-consensual non-monogamy and that for some people, that's a way to stay married to a partner that they're perfectly content with. You know, having an affair doesn't necessarily mean that your relationship is broken or that there's something wrong with your partner. And so sometimes that disclosure or discovery of an affair can lead to more intense conversations and better communication. It doesn't necessarily mean like our relationship is the end. Although, of course, there's what I call can opener affairs, which means you cheated because you actually wanted to get out. But, you know, to answer your question, I don't think that's the majority of affairs these days. So an interesting phenomenon that does happen when an affair is revealed is oftentimes the cheater says, well, I think we should now be practicing an open relationship, or I think we should now be practicing polyamory. I think this third party should now be an integral part of our lives. And it's really hard because any kind of open relating requires an openness and honesty. And it's really hard to build that when you've created a foundation of, of lying and deceit. So when you do talk about, oh, you want to have that really challenging conversation after an affair, what, you know, what is the new agreement that you, are, that you think is best to agree upon? Well, I, I actually don't think it works to uh, have an open relationship that's based on infidelity. I don't, an open relationship is not an excuse to continue your affair. Now, that doesn't mean that people don't have partners that uh, perhaps were previously secret or undisclosed and that they can integrate into their marriage. You know, there's, there's as many types of open monogamy or open relationships as there are people. Um, everyone defines it and refines it in the ways that work for them. So, you know, who, who am I to say how you should do it? But, you know, an open relationship is not like giving each other permission to cheat. Cheating by its nature is defined by lying, right? And so it's the opposite of open. And so the, an open relationship begins with transparency. And, you know, I do think it's hard to begin with an affair. I don't, I don't know if it's always difficult and always impossible, but I think it's better to start fresh. <laughs> I agree. And the reason I asked you about your previous book, as you mentioned, it seems like a very long time ago. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and our, our ideas change over time. And as an author myself, I know that if we were to write the book again, we often would write it differently as we learn more things. So I am curious, like, what are some different things that you have found since then? How have your ideas shifted as, you know, even something like open monogamy, non-monogamy has become more prominent and people have explored it in many different more ways? Well, open monogamy was written really as the result of 
people coming to me and saying, you know, do we have to have an affair to process our monogamy agreement? Like, shouldn't we be doing this proactively and uh, as a way to prevent infidelity? And can't everybody do this? Like, isn't this a good idea for everyone to really negotiate their monogamy agreement and to renew it on a regular basis? And so can we do it without having to have something catastrophic in our relationship? And so I always wanted to write the book about how to do your monogamy agreement in a way that could work for everyone. And so it's really a result of, of that book and the things that really worked for people that I could translate in a way that could work for anyone, regardless of, of where they were in their relationship, whatever developmental stage you are, whether you're pre-marriage or pre-commitment, or if you're in your you know second adolescence when the kids have grown and you're kind of empty nesters or... Um, or even later in life. So we've talked about it a little bit and I want to go into it because to me, it sounds a little bit like an oxymoron, right? We have this idea of open monogamy and it's also kind of provocative, right? Because I think a lot of people think of their monogamy as closed and then what do you mean I can open it? So let's get into it. What is open monogamy? So open monogamy is where you have a primary or central relationship or marriage, a committed partnership. That's like your due north. Like this is the person I want to be with, but I also want to have some kind of flexible or fluid monogamy agreement, some kind of arrangement that could change over time that we can be, you know, really transparent about and we can explore uh, as we grow as a couple and we could open it. We can close it. We can talk about things on that monogamy continuum. And <laughs> so, yeah, it is a little controversial. People in quote unquote open relationships don't really like the word monogamy. They might feel like it's a little restrictive and traditional and people in traditional monogamous relationships and marriage find it a little, <laughs> a little challenging as well. But I think it's, it, it's reflective really of people in contemporary relationships. You know, monogamy used to be synonymous with the word morality. And now I think it's more about honesty and integrity. And can you really be honest about who you are and what you want? So I'd love to get into what kind of agreements, what kind of ways that people do practice this open monogamy. And I want to read something that you wrote in your book about how monogamy is a verb. And you wrote this, monogamy is a decision you make every day the choice to be monogamous is always on your own terms. Some days are harder than others, which is why you should adjust your monogamy to fit your relationship. You don't have to adjust your relationship to fit your monogamy. I love that line. <laughs> you don't have to adjust your relationship to fit your monogamy. Adjusting your monogamy to fit your life is more practical and more realistic. So what are some like concrete examples and ways that you have found and even recommended for folks to adjust their monogamy? You know, as a couples therapist, I get people that come in all the time saying, can you just fix my partner? And then we'd be fine. Like, <laughs> just help me, help me change their mind about things. And then, you know, then I think our relationship would be great. And, you know, you know this, and I'm sure your listeners know this, you really can't change another person. So, you know, in, in order to be happy in a relationship, you really can't change your partner, but you can change the agreement. Like the agreement can be flexible and fluid over time. And the more you talk about it together, the more connected you are. You know, it's interesting to me that people will avoid talking about their monogamy agreement 
but they will risk everything by cheating behind their partner's back. So it's like they're willing to light the house on fire by avoiding having a conversation that might spark a little conflict. And and that that's interesting. I think, you know, 72% of people that they surveyed on Ashley Madison recently just came out in January of 2022 said that they would want to have a conversation with their partner about consensual non-monogamy, but they didn't know how to start it. And I think, you know, we might be underestimating our partner about about what they might be willing to talk about. And frankly, you can talk about these types of non-monogamy for the rest of your lives. You don't ever have to actually take them into action. And I want to be clear that that's one form of being open as well, is having these open dialogues about what the potential things you might do together could be. I love that. You know, open monogamy is having open and honest conversations about what that monogamy means to you. And, you know, I often think about non-Miguel Ruiz's four agreements, and one of them is don't make assumptions, right? And you're mentioning how important it is just have the conversation, because oftentimes there isn't a conversation at all. Both people have an idea of what monogamy means to them, and they assume the other person's idea is the same, but they never have that conversation. Yeah, that's exactly right. So people have this implicit assumption about monogamy and it's the implicit assumptions that really lead to betrayals. So the idea here is to make everything explicit. You know, we don't say I promise to love, honor you and tell you every time I talk to my ex on Facebook. You know, like we rarely talk about what our expectations are around monogamy. Should I tell you every time I masturbate in the shower? Should I tell you every time I have a fantasy about someone? Should I tell you every time I go out to lunch with my ex? Should I tell you, you know, every time I see someone hot on television? No, you don't have to do any of those things if your agreement is no, no way. Don't tell me. I don't want to know. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. But that's at least an explicit, you know, expectation so that there's no misunderstandings later on, so that you don't feel like you have to hide your phone or, you know, check your partner's texts. You know, there's a big difference between secrecy and privacy. And as long as you agree on what those things are, you can avoid a lot of problems later on. So I'm imagining this conversation and I'm I'm also imagining people will feel differently and have disagreements about what is okay and not okay in, in the relationship. So even when you mention like text with an ex, I was recently reminded of a friend and their partner got really mad at my friend because he was <laughs> This text- is a, about a friend. A friend. <laughs> a friend in quotes, air quotes. <laughs> Go ahead, sorry. No, this I know, I know what you mean. This but this is actually a friend. And <laughs> okay. the partner got mad at them for texting their ex and not letting them know. Right. And she, and this is a friend, but she was of the opinion that it's best to cut off all communication. So, one thing that can come up when we do talk about open monogamy is well, one person thinks this is okay and acceptable, and the other person does not. So, what do you do in that circumstance? You compromise? Do you only go as fast as the slowest person? I I never think compromise works really well because both people are, you know, always getting less of what they really want. So, I have a conversation around uh, two things, Uh, red lines and boundaries. I never set rules because rules 
are made to be broken just by the sound of it. It sounds parental. And then let's just say the rule is you never text an ex. Well, now what? Now I have to like parole you and like check your phone to make sure you don't. And then what happens when you do? Like I have to set some kind of punishment. Like that feels like I'm totally parentifying the relationship. And by the way, when you parentify the relationship, it becomes totally desexualized. I don't want to be your mother. So, you know, the rule thing doesn't work. I do think it's okay to have red lines in the relationship where you decide this is like a total no go for me. Like I, I can't, if we decide to have any kind of open anything, I can't ever see it being with an ex. Like we just have to start new with people that we don't know and we can't go backwards because I can't stand your ex-wife or your ex-husband or your ex-girlfriend. Like I don't want them in our lives or it can't be with someone from work or you can't have sex without protection or you can't ever have lunch with someone from my office or, you know, it doesn't have to be even a sexual thing. It can be, it can be, you know, you can't like someone else's page on Instagram because then they'll know that you're following them. You know, it can be really important to you that that is a red line that just cannot be crossed. You know, let's take the STI thing. Like it's, if, if you, if we don't use condoms, then this whole experiment gets shut down. Like I'm done. And that implies that there's sort of a veto power. Like we can each have a veto vote and decide, you know, I don't like this person that you want to go on a date with, or I don't like the fact that you are still in touch with your ex. And so I got to call a veto here. And you can do that for me as well. The other thing is boundaries. Like I think boundaries are personal. So I have my boundaries and you have your boundaries. My boundaries are flexible for me, but you can't tell me what my boundaries are. You can't say, well, your boundaries should be you're home by 11 o'clock. I can set my own boundaries. Like I, I want to make sure I'm home every night and sleeping in our bed. And I don't want our kids to know. And I don't want my mother to know. And I want us to talk every Friday night. And I want us to still you know, renegotiate this whole thing every month and like whatever my boundaries are, are mine and you should have yours as well. And those conversations, conversations should happen quite often. I think, I mean, you renew your, your driver's license and your passport, you you know, we got to renew your monogamy agreement too. I feel like I remember reading in your book, you recommended every five years. Was that the case? I think I'm, I think I'm, I'm sort of coming around to every two years. <laughs> maybe maybe because I'm getting older, but I feel like I don't think I think five years is too long. <laughs> I think I'm changing um, my mind around that. <laughs> so I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier when you define open monogamy as where you have a primary or central relationship with some kind of flexible fluid monogamy agreement. Because I'm thinking about a few communities that we see in the open relationship world. On the one hand, we have the BDSM kink community, where maybe there is like a primary partnership, but you have agreed to play with others. And maybe there's agreements around genital contact or other things. But when I hear like primary central relationship, I also think of the swinging community, who by and large have committed to a certain level of romantic exclusivity, but I'll just say sexual promiscuity. And then we have the polyamory community who's like, let's love everyone, multiple partners. And where do you see kind of open monogamy across these different kind of formats, spectrums? Would it be the envelope for these communities or more of like a subset? Uh, The way that I look at monogamy is that it's on a continuum. So on the far left, it's 
you know, if we have fantasies about other people, should we talk about them? And then as you move up the continuum, it's really like flirting, you know, can we flirt with other people? And then, you know, can, what happens to the emotional connection to other people, our our attachments, you know, kind of like the X or emotional affairs at work, uh, vicinity attractions, I call them, you know, when you really have deep connections with other people and then there's no energy left for your partner at the end of the day. And then, you know, sort of moving up the continuum, you may have sexual experiences with other people, but not romantic entanglements. And then what if you have both emotional and sexual experiences with other people, but they're not part of your household. So they're not part of your daily life. And then, you know, all the way to the other end of the far part of the spectrum, which is polyamory, which you have sort of an an anarchy, a hierarchical structure where like no one is more important than anyone else. And everyone is welcome in your in your, in your village, if you will, or your pod. The idea of open monogamy, I think, applies to all of that unless you're in, unless you're in an open relationship where you do not define your partner as primary, that you have multiple partners where everyone, you consider everyone equal. You know, before that, before that end of the spectrum, partners who choose to have their relationship as the primary where they choose to come home to or stay committed to, that's really the open monogamy relationship. It doesn't matter if they're having sex or not having sex. It doesn't matter if they're uh, legally married or not legally married. They know that that is their committed partner, regardless of how they form their monogamy on the side. And I want to be clear here that Everybody does it differently. What What's fascinating to me is even people who are in the sort of consensual non-monogamy community, everybody has a judgment about <laughs> what you should call it, how you should do it. You know, no, it should be called ethical non-monogamy. No, it should be called consensual non-monogamy. No, it should be called monogamish. No, it should be. Wow. You know, like for, for really liberal, open-minded people, it could be pretty judgy. <laughs> you know, I have people who are all the way on the right who say that I'm trying to foster affairs and I'm destroying the, the I'm destroying traditional marriage and you know religion <laughs> is you coming are. after me. <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> With your work. As the author of Open Monogamy and I'm a you know the devil <laughs> blonde hair. <laughs> and then I have the other people too who are, you know, the real, you know, positive sex positive community that I've belonged to for 30 years who are telling me that I'm you know, destroying the idea of open relationships because I use the word monogamy and, you know, they, they want to light me on fire too. You know, it's interesting that you brought up the new monogamy because now that book is almost 10 years old. And when I wrote that book, I got a lot of flack from the therapeutic community, the clinical community who told me that I was, I was inciting infidelity. (laughs) And a book about recovering from infidelity. (laughs) I I doubt any of those people actually read the book, but You know, I guess, you know, when you step out over the line a little, you got to take a little fire. Well, so many different directions I could take this, but I feel (laughs) like, well, it's helping everyone, right? So you mentioned the monogamy continuum, and I'll just read it for our listeners because you have it in the book. And if people want to learn more about these, they're just going to have to read the book. So like on one end, we have closed, right? Closed monogamy, not with anybody else, talking about with anybody else. And then it goes to fantasy emotional, sexual, autonomous, independent, unlimited, poly, and relationship anarchy. And 
you know, I feel like the main target for the book is people moving to like the other side of the spectrum. Like it's helping people explore those initial conversations, but it can also help people go to the other side in terms of like, let's be really clear about what our monogamy agreements is so that we can stay really safe in our little lovely relationship box. And I want to go into when we do want to go more towards the more open side of the spectrum and when we don't. Because oftentimes when people do open their relationship, they do cite like, I want my needs met or I'm not getting my needs met or I want other people to meet my needs that you currently aren't aren't fulfilling. And a lot of times that can be freeing, right? Oh, good. I don't have to do this thing I don't want to do. But sometimes the relationship's going sour. It's becoming sexless. It's becoming passionless. There's no communication. And rather than fix the relationship, they open it up to others. And sometimes it can even be a step towards breaking up. You mentioned can opener, the can opener, which I also love. So again, like when is it a good time? When is the bad time? How do we know if we're opening a relationship for the right reasons? You know, I'm glad you brought that up because most people don't think of this as flexibility going both ways. They just think you can be flexible, which means you can open it up and the door just opens. It doesn't close. You know, it's a really good uh, distinguishing quality to think of this as, you know, you can shut things down too, that this is a way to really get clear on what the definition is of how you want your relationship to go. And that it may be that at different times over the development of your, of your life and your relationship that you may want different things. You know, like when you're first dating, we tell people, oh, you know, shop around, don't be monogamous, don't settle until you decide, you know, you've really found like, quote unquote, the one. So we're encouraging people to be non-monogamous And then you settle down, you find that person, and there's a nesting period where a lot of people want to be monogamous, and and that kind of wears off after a while. If you have kids, there's a sort of need to stay home and co-parent just because it takes a lot of energy, and you can't leave kids, you know, babies home alone in the house. And so people tend to, just statistically, tend to open their relationships when the kids are a little older. Interestingly, they also get divorced when the kids are a little older. So around seven, when the kids can put themselves on the bus and tie their own shoes and uh, they're a little more independent, you kind of lift your head up and look around and go, oh my God, like, I can't believe we survived that. And they'll either look for something that will make them feel more sexy and alive, like infidelity or divorce or open relationships, or they'll look to improve their marriage. A lot of people end up in therapy after 10, 12 years, and then again, after 20 years. People also open their marriage in middle uh, middle life, which is what I call second adolescence. When the kids are older, you have an empty or open nest, and you know we we live long enough now that we have time to explore our sexuality, explore multiple relationships, explore dating again, partying, being a little wild. You know because we stay in better shape and we just have you know, more time to have multiple relationships. And then when you're older, you're just too exhausted. Like it takes too much time management. It's hard to multitask. You just want to stay home. It's exhausting. So have you found like, we kind of use the term sexual fluidity. Do you find, I might call like relationship paradigm fluidity? Like, do you find couples who have been open early on, kids come, they close down, kids leave, they open back up? 
Absolutely. And since the pandemic, when people were shut in and overly domesticated and <laughs> bored out of their mind, they a lot of couples came out of that saying, we need to, we need to open things up and bring some life into our relationship that we're not just parents stuck in quarantine. And I think also people realize that it takes more than just two people to have a life that you, you know, relationships are important, but not everyone can fill all your needs. And we might need to outsource some things. And maybe it really does take a pod or a village to raise a family. And maybe that will take a lot of the pressure off the pressure that we felt to try to survive. Maybe we are realizing that the nuclear family thing isn't going to work anymore. And a lot of that is because of women. You know, women are now working more than men, actually. Um, although we did have a recession of women losing their jobs during the pandemic, but the potential for women to be in the workforce is much greater. So that whole nuclear structure thing is is maybe is maybe past its its prime. And so maybe we do need to move towards a group experience where we have someone that can homeschool the kids and someone else that can cook and grocery shop and someone else that you can have sex with and someone else that wants to go out and go to clubs with you and someone else that, you know, you want to watch movies with. Like maybe we do need a multiplicity of partners. So we kind of mentioned how some people think that you're the devil and you're threatening the sacred institution. (laughs) (laughs) And I think for most people who have monogamy as their predominant paradigm, it seems like it's on a shaky pedestal. And any idea or intention to open it up has the potential to ruin it. And I think that is a concern for a lot of people in opening up their relationship is that their partner is going to leave them. Even if you just say, listen, we're only going to have one night stands with other people. We're going to remain committed to each other. There is that fear that the person will have sex once and get emotionally attached and then fall in love and have that new relationship energy where this new young thing seems much more exciting than their old normal partner. So it's obviously a lot to unpack here because there's the jealousy aspect. But then really it's just, do you find this to be the case often where people with good intentions open up their relationship, but then somebody falls in love with somebody else and they leave one person for the other? Well, first, I'd just like to address the fact that there, there's always a risk that your partner's going to meet someone and fall in love with them. Always. Whether you give them, quote unquote, permission to do it or not. You know, remember, there's 75 million members worldwide on Ashley Madison. So people are cheating all the time. And it happens. Only 7% of people leave their partner for for the person they're cheating with. So it's a very low percentage. And most people that cheat uh, don't end up staying with the partner <clears throat> that they were cheating with because obviously they have trust issues. You know, you know that the person you were cheating with is a cheater and they know you're a cheater. And so <laughs> you're starting off uh, ground zero there. Mm-hmm. But that same study that Ashley Madison did of uh, uh, found that 82% of women that were in open relationships are very fulfilled in those relationships. And so just anecdotally, what I've found is that in heterosexual relationships, men tend to be sort of the ones that push the issue. Like they say, okay, I want to try this. Women hesitate, do more research, think about it, explore their fears. They're more concerned. But once they do it, 
they want to stay in it. Men are like, okay, I'm done. I'm a little nervous. And that was fun. It was a good experience, a good experiment, maybe even. And women are like, I'm not done. That was great. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm having a great old time. Oh, no. (laughs) Really shot himself (laughs) in the foot there. (laughs) Right. Right. Pandora's box. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's because people fall in love and they want to leave their partner. It's because they find, you know, the energy to bring into their marriage. So, you know, what I always say is it's not that we look for someone else. It's that we look to be someone else. And so when we're with someone else, we find this other part of us that's sexy and alive and feels, you know, charming or whatever that part of us is. If you then can integrate that part of you into your marriage, now you've expanded your marriage, you're having better sex, and you're bringing that new relationship energy into your current partnership, and it's just better. That doesn't mean that people don't leave for their outside relationship. Um, You know, like I said, every, every situation is unique, but certainly that's the risk, and certainly people are afraid. I love that. You mentioned people don't look for someone else. They look to be someone else. And this is one of the most beautiful things about relationships in general is they do tend to bring out exciting parts of ourselves, maybe even the best parts of ourselves. So a lot of people do enter into relationships with other people, even though their primary partnership is very satisfactory, because it does bring an element of themselves that has been asleep for a long time. So... I want to go back into, because I feel like we didn't fully cover it about the idea of desire discrepancy, because you did just mention, okay, first we had one person pulling the other one into it. And then that person was (laughs) like, I like like it here. And the other person wants to go back. So they got a little scared. So that I think is one of the biggest, biggest challenges earlier. You mentioned that many people don't know how to start the conversation, but there's also that fear around starting the conversation. And this is opening up a big can here. What if I learn that my partner is attracted to other people that have been eyeing their coworker or something? So what do you do Yeah, when one person has a strong desire to have sex with others and the other person doesn't? Mm. Well, that's what I call the monogamy gap. You know, and I think there's that gap in all of our relationships. It's very rare to have, you know, the exact same expectation around monogamy or the exact same level of desire. You know, you want it the same day, the same way, the same time, all the time. You know, we're different people. That's part of what attraction is. You long for something over there and the, you know, attraction happens in the space in between you. And, you know, when it's sitting next to you on the couch every night, not so much. So you know, we're, we are attracted to differences. Differences also cause conflict. So we want separateness. We want difference, but we also want connection. So it's a, it's a constant battle to find our own uniqueness in our relationship while at the same time staying connected. And if you're throwing other people in there, it creates an intense experience of uniqueness. Like, who are you? What does this other people's person see in you? Like now you're much more attractive in a way because it adds a side of you that I don't even know. Yeah. So we have this intense experience of uniqueness, which can be really attractive, but it can also threaten our feelings of connection. And I think that goes to the way that I would describe 
resources in a relationship. So I, I think of it sort of like a pie with four slices. There's time, attention, affection, and sex. And we tend to think that those resources are limited and that if you give time to someone else, then I'm not going to get enough time. I'm losing that. And that may be true. Or, you know, if you are spending too much attention with that on on another person, then you're not going to pay attention to me. Or, you know, it's sort of like, okay, now you have a boyfriend and now you're going to be texting them all the time. So you're not going to pay attention to me when we're watching TV together. So, you know, these areas are not um, finite and they tend to expand. You know, it's kind of like if you have more than one kid, you don't, you don't necessarily give less affection to one kid because you have another kid. Um, you might be more affectionate to all your kids because you're happier and more fulfilled. But the idea is that when we feel threatened or when we feel jealous, it's usually because one of those areas is is feeling like not fulfilled. Like we feel like I'm not getting the attention that I need, or I'm not getting enough time with you, or I'm afraid that it's, it's going to ruin our sex life. You know, like there, there's a way that we can drill down a little bit and get more specific about what we're actually missing or what's actually bothering us. So I'd love to get into that jealousy because I think that's one of the biggest pieces and biggest obstacles that come up with people when thinking about opening up their relationship is I think for most people, this idea of jealousy is the inhibiting factor. You know, if you're like, oh, you guys are opening up your relationship. Don't you get jealous? Like, what are you going to to do about this jealousy that you're encountering? And I feel like I just heard from you that it's really helpful to inquire, right, where the jealousy is coming from. But... One question is how to manage the jealousy. And the other idea is, do you think I'm just too jealous is an appropriate or a sufficient reason to not explore different relationship paradigms? Well, first, I think everyone's jealous. I, I don't think that like some people are better at it because they don't get jealous. I think people have a different way of handling the feeling of jealousy. Some people eroticize jealousy, like they get jealous, but they it still kind of turns them on to think about their partner with someone else. And so they can, they can handle it in a different way. Other people can feel jealous and look at it as sort of a canary in the coal mine. Like, okay, something's, something's not right here. We need to talk a lot more about what's happening. And they can use it as a sign that the relationship needs more communication and um, we need more discussion. And other people still can use jealousy as a way to look at themselves and what what's going on with me where I need a little bit more self-confidence or self-esteem. Why am I feeling insecure? And how can I grow from that? And then still others look at jealousy as what is my partner trying to tell me with their behavior? Is there something passive aggressive going on? You know, like if they're saying, oh, my outside partner's much better body than you, then is that really the person I want to be with? <laughs> you know, do I really want to be with someone who's <laughs> going to compare and contrast and and be critical and like maybe I really got to look at this. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not that. Oh my God, you're so jealous. Maybe it's you're a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that jealousy. When I'm hearing from you, is an awesome opportunity for both growth and learning. 
We can learn about our partnership, what is happening there. We can learn about ourselves as we look at where these emotions are coming from. And we can look at our partner along the lines of like, what is compelling them to do this thing that, that's causing me to feel jealous? Right. Yeah, there's a lot of gaslighting around jealousy. I don't think we talk about that enough. I think we look way. at the partner who's, well, we look at the partner who's jealous as like this victim place. Like, it's like this victimology of, you know, oh, you're so, you're just being hurt and you're just being taken advantage of and you need to suck it up. And, you know, you're just one of those traditional monogamous people that really needs to like get with the program and, you know, you're really holding me back and you're, you know, you're blocking me from what I want. And, you know, there's this um, negativity, like it's a green monster and like, okay, well, it's just a feeling. It's a feeling like anything else and it has value. And it, um, and it may have something to do with, you know, the, the other person. It doesn't come from a vacuum. So when you mentioned it doesn't come from a vacuum, I wanted to get into what's natural <laughs> and what's not. So we're running a bit low in time. So this is, will be my final question before my final, final question. Okay. Because there is some debate around whether or not we are naturally monogamous or naturally non-monogamous. Some say that our ancestors were chimpanzees and things like jealousy, mate guarding, possessiveness are perfectly normal evolutionary behaviors for us to experience. Others say our ancestors were the bonobos, the loving, sexy, cuddle with everyone, polyamorous, uh, <laughs> solve problems with sex. <laughs> and some say that by and large, like we've evolved to be maybe emotionally uh, exclusive, but sexually promiscuous, for example. And what's your take on it? Is this even a dialogue we should be having? Well, you know, Wednesday Martin, who wrote Untrue, talks about how the female bonobos would drag a male out into the jungle and have like hot monkey sex and then bring him back and then drag another one out and have hot monkey sex. And then like <laughs> the females are really promiscuous. And it's not the males. And this whole idea of like men spreading their seed actually comes from a study in the 40s about fruit flies and is not even applicable to actual men and sperm. So, you know, we have a lot of mythology in our culture around monogamy and non-monogamy. That's not even based on real studies or science. I would recommend anybody who really wants to know more about it to read Wednesday Martin's book, Untrue, um, or listen to some of her lectures. I think she's brilliant. But my thought is, you know, why, why do we care if we're born monogamous or not? Like the reality is we're not acted, activated by our brainstem, like our survival instincts. We're, we have a prefrontal cortex. Like we can think like adults and we can make choices. And monogamy is a choice. And like you said in the very beginning, we have to choose it every day. And how we're going to choose it is up to us. And And frankly, we can learn. You know, we're not born knowing how to eat with a fork either, but we learn, <laughs> you know? So does that mean we're, you know, we're not meant to eat with forks? No, that has nothing to do with it. It means that we have this prefrontal cortex and we can learn these higher level skills and we have a choice. You can eat with a fork or not eat with a fork. It's up to you. So I think monogamy is a, is the same thing, you know, and, and interestingly enough, women have always been the gatekeepers of monogamy. It's just that men have in a patriarchal society where men have been in charge of uh, property and passing down property, 
you know, they've kind of been in charge of the rules around monogamy. For the first time in history, that no longer applies. You know, we don't need to get married as a female to inherit property. We don't need to get married to have sex. We don't need to get married to have kids. We don't need to get married to get a mortgage or insurance. We don't really need to get married. And so when that, you know, for the first time in history is optional, when there's choice involved in marriage and monogamy, then everything's on the table. And so, you know, as women who had a sexual revolution in the 60s and became the gatekeepers of, you know, free a free sexual society, now we are the gatekeepers of monogamy. And, you know, women do tend to be the ones that decide what our monogamy is going to look like. And that's not to rule out hetero men or gay men, but I think it's why we're seeing such a huge revolution in the way that we structure our relationships. I love that insight. And you answered a question we didn't get to because I, I wanted to ask, some say that non-monogamy is a choice, others an, an orientation. And what I'm hearing from you is that it is a choice and we don't have to be directed, guided by any sort of evolutionary tendency or behaviors because we have the freedom to choose our own destiny. So thank you so much, Dr. Tammy Nelson, for coming on to the show. And I do have to finish by asking the same question I ask all of my guests, which is, what do you wish everyone knew about love? What I wish everyone knew about love is that we don't have just one soulmate, because that would imply that if we, if we end a relationship, then we have to trade that person in, then we got it wrong. I think one thing we need to think about love is what if everyone you meet is your soulmate? Would we treat love differently? Would you love everyone differently? Would you look at life differently? Uh, what if you had a pod and everyone you knew in your life right now or, or is your pod and you're going to travel with them throughout many lifetimes? What if you could love everybody in the same way? I love that. What if everyone you meet is your soulmate? Would you treat them or life differently? Ah, thank you so much, Dr. Tammy Nelson, for coming on to the show. Dr. Tammy Nelson is a licensed psychotherapist, the executive director of the Integrative Sex Therapy Institute, and the author of the new book, Open Monogamy, A Guide to Co-Creating Your Ideal Relationship Agreement. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? They can go to drtammynelson.com. That's drtammynelson.com. Or they can go to openmonogamy.com if they want to find out more about the book. And you can find the book everywhere books are sold. And actually, if your readers want to contact me directly, Tammy at drtammynelson.com, I can send them a free white sheet with 37 questions to start the conversation about your new monogamy agreement. And you can put that in your show notes as well. Wonderful. Well, I'll be sure to do that. 37 questions. That's what I was really wanted to figure out is like, you know, how do we think about these parameters? How do we come up with these agreements? So that will be incredibly useful for our listeners. So thank you, Dr. Tammy Nelson, for coming on to the show. Thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you check out Open Monogamy. Check out the book. It's up to you if you want how much you want to explore it. <laughs> and you can figure that out. And if you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Tammy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to zachbeach.com or theheartcenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 